All right, we're ready to take this one thing's process to another level. We are in the second month now. In the first month, we focused on personal spirituality, growing as an individual. And now in the second month, we're going to focus on corporate spirituality, growing in our interactions with one another and understanding the significance of why God gives us one another and why there's so much of a command about one anothering in the New Testament. Now, last month, we focused so much on the individual nature of our spirituality that we might be tempted to ask the question, why do we need a corporate dimension at all? Why do we need to come to church? Why do we need to gather? Why do we need to put on nice clothes and go through the process of getting ourselves ready and coming to the house of God? Why can't I just get on my knees in my prayer closet, turn on some worship music, open my Bible, and have just a a powerful individual time with God? Well, we're going to talk about that this month. And the first thing that I want to say is that God wants to give us a vision for the gathering. And that's really what I want to impart in this message today, is that God wants to give us a vision for the gathering, just as we have a vision for our individual walks with Christ. But there's something very significant about the gathering that is central to the biblical teaching on what it means to be the New Testament church. And if we don't give heed to it, then we're missing something that is extremely important to Christ And it's extremely important to us as believers as well. I'd like to direct your attention to the book of Matthew chapter 16. And we're going to begin at verse 13. And we're going to read a few verses here. I'm reading out of the New International Version. And so if you would like to follow along in that version, that's fine. If you have another version, that's fine as well. This is what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys to the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. Let's pray. Father, I pray today in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ that your spirit would fall heavily upon the hearts and minds of each and every one of your sons and daughters that are gathered in this place today. Lord, I pray that you would speak to us with clarity through the power of your word and that the message would not be hindered by the medium of video, but that your word would come clear and that your people would receive it as if I were present in body there before them. Because, Father, truly, it's not I that speak, but it's you who speaks. And it's not my word that has the power to change anyone's life, but it's your word. And you needn't be physically present for your word to change our lives. And so, Father, I pray that your word would be sown like seed in each and every heart and each and every mind. And that it would bring forth fruit. I pray it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. Now, are you with me? Now, Jesus takes his disciples to this region of Caesarea Philippi. It's a region that that was a Greco-Roman pantheon. All of these Greco-Roman gods surrounded this region. And Jesus takes his disciples to this region and asks the question, Who do people say that I am? And they said, Jesus is literally asking, What is the popular opinion about who I am out there? And so they began to report. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. Some say you're the prophet. Some say you're Jeremiah. Jesus says, Well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? There's a lull in the atmosphere for a moment as 
the disciples begin, their minds are ticking. This is the question that they were trying to ask from the, trying to answer in their own minds and hearts and among themselves from the very moment that they met him, from the very moment that he said, come and follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. They thought he was a rabbi. They didn't know right offhand that he was the Christ, that he was the long-awaited Messiah. They just thought he was a great rabbi and they wanted to follow him. But now Jesus brings everything that he had done before their eyes to its logical conclusion and he demands that they make a decision about him. Who do you say that I am? There's a hush over the disciples for a moment. And then Peter stands and says, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah, the Mashiach. Literally, the, the, the word Christos in the Greek means oily one. It comes from the Hebrew Mashiach, which means anointed one. You are the anointed one, and you are the son of the living God. Peter speaks with absolute clarity. He says, I know we have... Uh, you know, we've been skeptical of this and we've wondered about this. We flirted with this conclusion. But Peter says, I'm going to stand up and make this conclusion as clear as day. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of John, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. Blessed are you, Simon, son of John. You didn't get this by being a good Sunday school student or by reading a lot of books. My father in heaven revealed this to you. And then he makes this declaration about Peter. Peter says to Jesus, you are the Christ. And now Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter. His name was Simon. But Jesus says, you are Peter. The Greek term there, Petros. You are Petros. And Jesus says, and upon this rock, the word rock in the Greek is Petra. You are Petros. And upon this Petra, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, we need to understand this terminology for a moment here. He says, you are Petros, which means rock. You are the rock, Petros. And upon this Petra, this rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now, the first thing we need to understand is that Jesus was not speaking Greek when he said this. Jesus did not speak in Greek when he was speaking to his disciples. When he taught, he spoke Aramaic or Hebrew, not Greek. Now, the disciples, when they took down the teaching of Jesus and when they wrote the letters of the, of the New Testament, when they wrote the Gospels, they had to translate the teachings of Jesus from Aramaic into Greek. The form we have them in is in Greek because they were translated so that they could be given to the entire Near Eastern world, not just uh, kept within this kind of group of Jews, but given to the entire Near Eastern world. They were translated immediately. So in, in Aramaic, there's only one term for rock, and it's the word kaipha. Jesus says, you are kaipha, and upon this kaipha, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. This is why in some places in the New Testament, Peter is called Cephas. It comes from the Aramaic kaipha, which when transliterated into Greek comes out Cephas. You are the rock, and upon this rock I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now what's interesting is that Jesus calls Peter the rock upon which the church is built. Now I know that that has been translated and interpreted by Roman Catholics in a particular way. That particular way of interpreting that statement has been reinterpreted by Protestants in another way. Let me just make it clear. Jesus was talking about Peter. He says, Peter, you are the rock upon which I will build my church. The clear context of the passage indicates that what Jesus said was just as much about Peter as what Peter said was about Jesus. Peter says, you are the Christ, and Jesus says, you are the rock. 
uh, the rock upon which I'll build my church. The question is, what makes Peter the rock? What made him the rock was his confession and his faith. Peter became the rock when he made his good confession, you are the Christ. Literally, the rock quality in Peter comes from his faith and his willingness to stand on that faith and make a confession. Literally, what this means is that the path that Jesus led Peter on when he met him as a fisherman revealed himself to him, that miraculous catch of fish. Peter says, depart from me for I'm a sinful man. Jesus says, don't be afraid, just come follow me and I'll make you a fisher of men. All of the work that Jesus had done in Peter's life of transforming him and molding him in the secret. Remember, Peter was in his inner circle, Peter, James, and John. Jesus took them, those three, into the home of, of Jairus, the ruler of the, of, the, of, the, of the synagogue, whose daughter Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus took his inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up to the mountain of transfiguration where he was transfigured before them and the glory of the Father shone around him. This inner circle, Peter was chief of the, that inner circle. He was one of the three most intimate companions of Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was doing an intense work of development and formation in his life and brought him to this place of revelation where he saw clearly who Jesus was and then this place of, of confident boldness where he was willing to speak out of that faith and, out of the, and make a confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus says, that's it. That is the rock upon which I will build my church. That confession and that faith that makes you the rock. And so Jesus made a, a statement at this time that he would take the personal development of the individual members of his church and use it as a foundation upon which to build his church. In other words, the corporate dimension of your faith is the foundation for under, I'm sorry, the individual dimension of your faith is the foundation for understanding the corporate dimension. And we'll see this in just a second. So Jesus says, this confession, this faith, you've just discovered by revelation who I am. This is the rock upon which I will build my church. That is, I will take the one and bring out of the one the many. Just as Abraham is the father of faith to all who believe, Abraham is the one that God said, come out of your father's house and go to the place I'll show you, and I will make of you a great nation. The Old Testament counterpart to Peter is Abraham. Abraham is the rock upon which God builds the Old Testament church. But we've got to stop and talk about that word church for a moment. In the Greek text here, Jesus says, upon this rock I will build my church. The word is ekklesia, ekklesia. This is Matthew 16, 18. He says, on this rock, on this Petra, on this Kaipha, I will build my ekklesia, ekklesia. Look at your neighbor say, ekklesia. Now the word ekklesia is a compound Greek term. The prefix ek means out, and klesia comes from kaleo, which means to call. Ekklesia means called out. Jesus says, upon this rock, I will build my called out. The question is, called out what? We can infer he means his called out body of believers. And yes, that's true, but there's a deeper dimension that we must understand. The term ecclesia, the Greek term ecclesia is used more than 100 times in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament used in the intertestamental period for the Jews that had been dispersed all over the Greco-Roman world. 
Now, the Septuagint, this Greek translation of the New Testament of the Old Testament, uses the term ecclesia to translate the Hebrew term kahal. Say kahal. Look at your neighbor. Say kahal. Now, kahal means assembly. And Israel, again and again and again in the Old Testament, is referred to as the assembly of the Lord. The Kahal Yahweh, or the Kahal Yisrael. The assembly of the Lord, or the assembly of Israel. Either the assembly of the Lord, or the assembly of Israel. Again and again and again in passages like Numbers 16, 3, Numbers 20, verse 4, Deuteronomy 23, 1 through 3, and First Chronicles 28, 8, Nehemiah 13, 1, Micah 2, 5, again and again and again, Israel is called either the assembly of the Lord or the assembly of Israel. Now, I want you to understand that Israel as a nation was first and foremost an assembly an assembly that was called together before the Lord. And there's this whole concept of all Israel. We see all is whenever we see all Israel gathering gathering together, when all Israel gathers together, they're called the assembly of the Lord. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, this powerful passage in Deuteronomy chapter 5, the scripture says in verse 1, and Moses called all Israel and said to them, Hear, O Israel, Shema Israel. We see that great Shema appearing in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, and with all your soul. That word you, when he says you shall love the Lord, it's not an individual you. It's a plural you. He's speaking to all Israel. He's speaking to the Kahal Israel, the assembly of Israel, or the assembly of the Lord. That is the church. And so when Jesus says, upon his, this rock, I will build my Kahal, my assembly, ecclesia, my called out, he says, I'm going to build my assembly. Just as Moses brought together the assembly of Israel, I'm bringing together the assembly of the Messiah. And that's what the church is. He didn't use the English term church. He used the Greek ecclesia, which is the Hebrew term kahal, which means assembly. Upon this rock, this rock of faith, this rock of confession, I will build my assembly, my kahal, my gathering and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. What will the gates of hell not prevail against? The gathering of the Lord, the assembly of the Lord. That is, if we want to understand what it means to say that we are the church of Jesus Christ, we must start with the confession that we are the assembly. He did not say, upon this rock, I will build my individual relationship with each and every believer. He said, upon this rock, I'll build my assembly, my gathering. And so if we want to step into the heart of Jesus Christ about what it means to be sons and daughters of his, about what it means to be the church that he bought with his own blood, about what it means, what he, what, what he died for, he died for the church, the assembly, the gathering together. And it is in the assembling together of ourselves that we take the first step into the heart of what it means to be the church. Now we got to understand that yes, we're baptized into Jesus Christ, but Paul said very clearly that all of us who are baptized into Christ were baptized into his body, which is the church. That is, we weren't simply baptized into an individual relationship with God through Jesus Christ. It was that, but it was that plus we were baptized into his body, into the church. 
And we experience that first and foremost as we engage and participate in the gathering together of believers to worship. I want us to get a vision for the gathering today. I want us to get a vision for the significance of the gathering. I believe that if you get a vision for the significance of the gathering, you won't miss it. I believe that if you get a vision for the divine significance of the gathering and what it means to God and what it means to us, you won't skip it. You know, one of the, one of the most difficult things for a pastor is to impart to the people of the house a vision for the gathering. Because when you don't understand the importance of the gathering, you skip it for any reason whatsoever. You miss it because you want to go bowling or because there's a movie out or so you can play football or, or so you can, you know, I mean, you miss it for all of these different reasons. And, and I, honestly, it's, it's always hard for me to understand that. But what I realize is that people miss the gathering for reasons that are insignificant because they simply don't have a vision for it. They simply think that the church is a place where they go to get some spiritual goods and services and to get some good spiritual information. And so I think if I just listen to the podcast or if I go to the website and download, download the sermon and listen to it or I even watch it on the live stream, then I've got it and that's all I need. Let me tell you something. The gathering is more than the information that is imparted in it. The gathering is more than the information that is imparted in it. It's not just about some spiritual points that you need for your individual Christian life. But the nature of the gathering is far more holistic and far more powerful than that. And so uh, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25 commands us not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as in the manner of some. He says, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as is the manner of some, but exhort one another and so much more now as you see the day approaching. And so the gathering is so important and we need to get a vision for the gathering. Now, Jesus commanded us to pray in the Lord's prayer. He said that we should pray our father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let me ask you a question. If you could see heaven, what would you see? I mean, if we're praying for God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven, what's heaven like? I mean, what would you experience if you went to heaven? What would you see if you went to heaven? Well, I think we need to ask I think we need to ask the Apostle John what he saw, because he actually went to heaven. You know, there was a dude that went to heaven, and he saw some pretty awesome stuff in heaven. But what was it that he saw when he went to heaven? Let's ask John and see if John can give us any insight into this, this, this most uh, pressing question. Well, first of all, John said he saw a multitude, which no one could count, and he said they were gathered around the throne of God. I saw a multitude which no one could count, and they were gathered around the throne of God. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 9, he said, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands. In Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, he said, After these things I heard a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power belong to the Lord our God. He says it again in verse 6, as I, And I heard, as it were, the voice of a great multitude, 
as the sound of many waters and the sound of mighty thundering, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. So the assembly is our destiny. The assembly is what we are destined for. It's what God is leading us toward. What we are, what we're moving towards is not a one-on-one FaceTime. You know, we always talk about, you know, when I see God, I'm going to run into his lap and jump into his arms. We don't see that in the New Testament picture of heaven. What we see is a multitude gathered before the throne that no one can count. A multitude out of every tongue and out of every tribe and out of every kindred and out of every nation. And, you know, the greater the multitude, the bigger the multitude, the closer we get. To me, there's something about a multitude but when the multitude speaks with one voice, I remember being at Promise Keepers in 1995 at the Oakland Coliseum and, and such great speakers as Tony Evans was there preaching the gospel. And there was like 40 or 50,000 men there it's just filling up the, the, the Oakland Coliseum. And not only the bleachers on the seats, but down on the grass, the whole field was filled with with men who were worshiping the Lord. And the times of worship were glorious. I mean, the times of worship were out of control, and the sense of the presence of God was off the charts. As a matter of fact, we've seen the greatest miracles in, on the mission field when we go. The greater the size of the crowd, when a bigger crowd comes with greater anticipation, and they bring more people, they, they, they see such a significance to the gathering that they bring their friends and their family members and their neighbors and their sons and their daughters. They bring the sick and the afflicted. Some of these guys in, in Ethiopia would even bring their cattle. You know, they would come out there with a bunch of cows out there, or they'd bring a whole flock of goats with them to the crusade. It was so important that they brought whatever was valuable to them, and they came, and, not, and they would not miss it. Some of them walked for days to get there. That was th- Those are the places where we've seen the greatest outbreak of miracles, where we've seen signs and wonders and mighty deeds, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the mute speak, tumors fall off of people's bodies, and demons come out screaming with a loud voice. I mean, all of these things happen in the great assembly, and, and that's a very biblical thing. And so the assembly is our destiny. The assembly is what God envisions when he thinks of heaven. And one of the things that, that makes the assembly so important is that in the assembly, and this is why we don't like the assembly, because in the assembly we become nameless and faceless. You know, you hear people say things like, I don't like going to a big church where there's a lot of people because, number one, nobody knows who I am. I'm just, you know, I'm just there. I'm not really important. I'm just kind of a, a name. I'm not even a name. I'm just a, I just, I just fill a seat. And so, you know, why have these, these big assemblies where I'm just filling a seat? You know what? The thing about an assembly is that we all just become a face, a name. You know, we all want a name for ourselves, and we all want to be heard and understood and seen. But that's not what worship is all about. Worship is not about you being seen. Worship is not about you being known. Worship is not about you being able to say what's on your heart or share your feelings. You know, it's funny. I hear people say opposite things. Why don't you go to small group? Because I don't want nobody knowing my business. How come you don't come to church? Because it's too impersonal. There's so many people there. I just get lost in the crowd. Well, you know, you, you can't say both at the same time, you know. But the thing about worship, it's fun, it's, worship is not fundamentally about us being known. It's fundamentally about us knowing God and making him known. It's about us being hidden behind the shadow of the cross. It's about him increasing and us decreasing. It's about us getting past ourselves and, and getting around ourselves and not being concerned about ourselves anymore. It's about with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And when, when the voice of the multitude begins to speak, 
And suddenly you don't hear any individual in it anymore. You just hear the voice of the multitude, the voice of the people. That's the, song, that's the sound that I listen for every Sunday. You know, sometimes people have asked me why it is that I'll get up and talk in the middle of worship sometimes on Sunday morning. It's because I'm listening for a particular sound from the house. The thing I want everybody to understand is that when we come together to worship, the sound I'm looking for is not coming from the platform. The sound I'm looking for is coming from the house. And if the only sound in worship comes from the platform, then what we've done is gather for a concert or a performance. But what's happening on the platform is what we call worship leading. And worship leading is nothing if the people in the house don't enter into worship. You know, I've been thinking a lot about uh, my experience in the boys' choir when I was young. When I was little, my parents took me and, and my two brothers and, and enrolled us in the Singing Boys of San Francisco Bay. It was a, a, a traditional English boys' choir experience, and it was wonderful. I wouldn't trade it for the world. But I was about 11 years old or 10 years old when, we started, when I started singing in the choir, and we traveled all over Europe, and we traveled all over Canada. We traveled the East Coast. We sang at the White House and had some marvelous experiences. But they trained us for hours. But it was hours and hours and hours of rehearsing. The one thing that the director would say is he would say, you have to learn how to sing as a choir. At times he'd say, everybody sing, and we would all sing our parts, and I thought it sounded beautiful, but he'd say, no, that was completely wrong. We said, well, why was that wrong? We all got our parts right. I was so confused. I thought, I know I nailed my part, and it sounded beautiful to me. But he said, all you are is a bunch of individuals singing right now. You're not yet a choir. In order to become a choir, you must learn to blend your voices with one another. You must learn, number one, the importance of your voice, and number two, the importance of the voices of the people around you. And so as you sing, you must not only be careful to sing your part correctly, but you must listen to the people singing around you. And make sure, number one, that the person to the right of you and the person to the left of you can hear you, and number two, that you can hear the person to the right of you and the person to the left of you. If you can't hear the people next to you, you're singing too loud. And if the people next to you can't hear you, you're singing too soft. And when he gave us that instruction and we followed it, all of a sudden we lifted up our voices and we became a choir. And what was so beautiful, I would hear it even now when I hear the sound of a voice, a voice choir, a really professional voice choir. There might be 50, 60, or 100 boys singing, but when they're singing in unison, it sounds like one voice, just one voice. And then they begin to sing in harmony. The sopranos and the altos and, and the first soprano, second soprano, alto, and they begin to sing in harmony. And there's a plurality of voices, but they're all resonating with one another. It's together. And that's the sound that I listen for in the house of God, not from a musical per professional perspective. But I listen for that sound of worship. What I long for at Living Hope Christian Center is that we would become one voice in the act of worship. That it wouldn't be, oh, I can hear this one. Oh, you know, a lot of times we'll say to each other, oh, I heard Kevin say mercy last Sunday. Oh, Kevin's mercy, that's awesome. And I heard Caroline Jogu, you know, she was, hallelujah. You know, and we've got individuals in the house that kind of stick out here and there. And, you know, I'm one of those. A lot of times when I go to different places to sing, you know, just standing out in the crowd, people, I heard your voice over the multitude. What I want is the sound of the house to emerge. And we need Kevin's mercies. Don't get me wrong. We need Caroline's hallelujahs. You know, Maxine's too. You know, we, we need everybody's voice to be heard. But what I'm looking for is for Living Hope to become one voice in the act of worship. One voice 
and the experience of worship. And in that becoming one voice, each of us lays down our own wants, lays down our own needs, lays down our our need to be seen or need to be heard or need to hide, need not to be seen, need not to be heard. I neither go to church to be an exhibitionist or to be an isolationist. I, I don't go to church to be seen and I don't go to church to hide at the back, but I go to offer my voice to the voice of the multitude so that we learn what it means to sing as one and to worship as one and we learn what it means to offer everything we have to God as one. And that's what I'm looking for. That's what God is looking for. John said that in heaven there's the sound of a multitude. He said it was a multitude that could not be counted. But when they lifted up their voice, it was one voice. I saw that with maybe 50, 60, 70, maybe 100 boys in a professional boys choir. But with a multitude that can't be counted, there's such unity as can only be brought about by the Spirit of the Lord. And so, listen, you can have a powerful time in the presence of God in your prayer closet, but unity can only be experienced in the assembly. And it's in the assembly of the Lord that we come together to know what it means that there's one body and there's one God, there's one Lord and there's one faith and there's one baptism. We understand that oneness only in the assembly. And so to understand the oneness of God, we also have to understand the oneness of one another. And that's why Moses says in, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel. He's speaking to all Israel. Hear, O Israel. The Israel that has come together as one is able to hear him say, The Lord your God, the Lord is one. And it's interesting that the word one that Moses uses there, achad in the Hebrew, is a plural one. It's one, but it's plural. And we learn through the New Testament that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is an assembly of three divine persons, just as we are an assembly of those who gather together to worship Him in spirit and in truth. You know, I think it's very, very important that we go over these things, because a lot of times, you know, it's hard for me as a pastor, and I'm sure many other pastors have this, this experience, that so often when we miss somebody at church, if we call and say, hey, I missed you at church on Sunday, people almost have a look in their eye as if they have done something wrong to me. Oh, I'm so sorry, Pastor. I'm so sorry I missed it. I'll, I'll, be, I'll be there next week. This is what happened. This is why. And, and it's, it's a little awkward for a pastor to, to ask people, why did you miss church? How come you weren't there? Because people think, I want you there for me. No. First and foremost, I have a commitment to being in the house of God for worship because I know how powerful the gathering is for me. Whether I'm preaching or not, I'm not going to skip it. And even if I'm out of the country or if I'm in another part of the world, for some reason, Sunday morning, it's time to go to church. I mean, you know, John was in the spirit on the Lord's day, even on the island of Patmos, where he was the only believer. He still had church on Sunday when it was time for church. He went up out by himself, even though he had to do it by himself. He said, it's time for me to worship, and he went into a time of worship. And so I believe if I'm anywhere in the world, if there's an assembly of believers around, I'm going to go assemble with those believers. I just cannot fathom purposefully missing a time of assembly with believers when it's time to go to church. For me, that just does not fit into my value system. But when I ask someone and I say, hey, I missed you on Sunday. How come you didn't come? Or say, man, you've got to stop missing so much church. You really need to plug in. People think what I'm saying is I need as many people in the congregation when I preach as possible because it makes me feel better as a preacher to have people there. Let me tell you something. I don't want you coming to church for me. 
to make me feel better or to to think you're doing I don't want you to feel like you're doing me a favor by coming to church and I don't I definitely don't want you to feel like you've done me a disservice by not coming no I want you to come because the community and the gathering of believers is the place where we experience the oneness of the body of Christ and it's the context for the moving of the Holy Spirit and I don't want you to miss that Every single time we gather, God does something powerful, and I don't want you to miss that. And especially when we've had a powerful service, you know, so often when I call someone or I talk to someone, I say, hey, I missed you at church, or even when your lay pastor, you know, when your lay pastor reaches out to you and says, hey, missed you at church last Sunday, what happened? It's not because, you know, we need to check off your name on the list so that we know you're there. It's because we don't want you to miss, I mean, you know, last Sunday was so awesome, and I just think about what God did, and man, if you would have been there, Man, you would have got something so powerful out of it. And when we find out that you miss for no reason at all, you just don't understand that value has not, just it just hasn't sank in yet. And so I want to impart that value to you so that we understand it and that we know how to flow in it. Now, the last point I want to make is that the assembly of the believers, our gathering together as an assembly, is the context for the moving of the Holy Spirit. And of course, I'm thinking about the book of Acts chapter 2. It says, when the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all gathered together in one place and in one accord. That gathering, that faithfulness to the gathering, coupled with that perfect unity of heart, was the context for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. When the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all gathered together in one place and in one accord. In one place and in one accord. And what we see in most churches is that one or the other or both are missing. Either we're not all together in one place. You know, talk to a pastor, say, how many members you got in your congregation? You say, I got 500 members, but I'll only have 300 on the average Sunday morning. The average Sunday, 200 people are missing. When was the last time everybody was together? I mean, every member of the house was gathered together at one place in one time. I mean, do you know that we would have to have three services if everybody came on one Sunday morning, everybody showed up in one place. We'd have to add an extra service. So everybody gathered together in one place and in one accord. You know, there's some churches where everybody gathers in one place, but not in one accord. Why? Because there's somebody sitting over there with negativity in their heart. I don't know why we're doing this. We shouldn't be doing that. And somebody over there is mad at somebody over there. And somebody over here is, man, I'm sick and tired of singing this song. And I don't like this worship leader. I wish this other person would be worshiping. Oh, I can't stand it when this person plays drums. And all of this division in our thinking and in our minds and in our hearts, God wants to not only get us in one place, but in one accord. And when the church gets together in one place and in one accord, that is the context for praying for revival. And I don't know about you, but I, I I want to see revival come and hit this church and hit this region. But that revival begins with a commitment to gather together in one place and in one accord. And when, when that one place, one accord coincides with God's divine timing, the day of Pentecost would fully come. It was God's divine timing. And they were all gathered together in one place and in one accord. Their part was done. Now there came a sound as of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the house where they were assembled. And cloven tongues as a fire separated and rested upon each head. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. They spoke in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. It was the assembly in unity 
that became the context for revival. You know what? If we're not willing to do this faithfully, we shouldn't even pray for revival. If we're forsaking the gathering, we should, what we're saying is we don't even really believe in revival. We're not expecting for it to come. But listen, there's a divine mandate over this house that we get a vision for the assembly and understand that the assembly is the context within which God will send revival. When God sends revival, he's not sending it on your prayer closet. He's not sending it on my prayer closet. Nobody will ever be drawn to my prayer closet or to your prayer closet. But when God sends revival, he's sending it upon his house. He's sending it upon his people. He's sending it to the gathering, to the assembling of his people together for worship. And that is why the assembly is of utmost importance. Listen, I'm urging you, I'm encouraging you, I'm imploring you before the Lord Get a vision for the assembly. Understand that this is the heart and mind of God. Understand that he loves to see his people gathered together in one place and in one accord. And if we would get a vision for the assembly, and if we would come together in one place and in one accord and begin to seek the face of God with one voice, if in worship we would become a choir rather than simply a noisy crowd of individuals, if we would understand that the worship team on the platform is there to accompany us and, and we are not there simply to watch and listen to them. If there would be a coming together of this house in worship, I believe with all of my heart, mind, and soul that God will do a work that you would not imagine. You wouldn't believe it if someone were to whisper it in your ear. It would cause the ears of those who hear it to tingle. God is doing an awesome work but we're living in the last days and we must heed the exhortation of Hebrews 10:25 don't forsake the gathering when you gather together to worship as some are in the habit of doing but consider how you might encourage one another especially more now as you see the day approaching and we encourage one another when we come together and gather together to worship God with all of our hearts, mind, and soul. The church is first an assembly and second a community. The church as a community has to do with our interactions with one another. The church as an assembly has to do with our interactions with God. We gather first as an assembly to give ourselves to God, and in the process of gathering as an assembly, we find that we've become a community. And a church that focuses primarily on being a community misses the essence of what worship really is. That's not going to be us. My brother, my sister, God has something for you in the gathering. And right now he's stretching out his hand toward you and he's saying, come and receive, come and receive, come and receive. It's time. It's time for us to become one. It's time for us. This was the cry of Jesus in John 17. He prayed that we would be one, even as he and the Father were one. He prayed for our oneness. That was his last great prayer, that we would be one. And God is doing it by his Spirit. question is, would you partner with him? Would you partner with him? If we're ready, the Spirit of God is ready to do something awesome among us. Bless you. that word this morning. Amen. Right, here's what I want us to do. I want us just to take the hand of the person next to us. You don't have to stretch all the way out or get crazy. Just someone next to you. And I, I want us to join together with one voice. And we're going to pray fervently for that for a couple moments here. 
God, give us a vision for the assembly. Give us a vision for the assembly. Right? Where excuses begin to dissipate of why we're not coming again. We're not coming here for Pastor Benjamin or Pastor Sonny or for me or for anybody else necessarily. We're coming that as one body, as one voice, we approach God. And that he can do what he wants to do in this body, in this house, as one together. So come on, I want you just to open your mouth. God, give us a vision, please. Come on, I want you to pray, God, give us a faith to believe for one another. Give us a desire, Lord, to encourage one another, Lord, not just to come to a service, but to come to be with you as one body, as one house, that our voice should rise up as one body. Give us a vision for the assembly, Lord God. Give us a vision to worship you as one multitude, Lord God. Father, remove any sense of isolationism, Lord God. Remove any sense of exhibitionism, Lord God. Where we're here just to display ourselves or where we're here to even run and hide from the, the, the rest of the members of this congregation. But Lord, when we have a heart to say we are here because of Christ, we are here. He has bought us with a price and we are a body and we are a family and we are one. Where our voice is going to be lifted up as one. Where as a house, we're going to seek your face and we're going to pursue you, Lord. Jesus, give us a vision for the assembly. Let us come on Sunday mornings with an expectation to meet you as a family, with an expectation to meet you as a body, where this corporate gathering is a powerful gathering. Lord, where, where it prepares the stage for the movement of your Holy Spirit. God, let us not seek revival individually, but corporately, Lord God. Let's not seek your move just in our life or our families, but together, Lord God, in our life and our families together, Father. God, give us a vision for the assembly in Jesus' name. You know, I want to pray for this uh, one thing really quickly. You know, one thing about churches is that it's very easy to get hurt. Can we just be real? One of the scariest things about being a part of an assembly, as Pastor Benjamin says, is that people come into our space, right? They come into our bubble. And vulnerability is one of the most raw and the most fearful things that we could experience emotionally and even as a corporate body. Because when you're vulnerable, literally, you're putting yourself in a position where there's opportunity for harm and hurt to happen. But I want to pray that God would help this be a safe body. I want to pray that we as the members of this congregation would rise up and create a place of safety. Create that we would say it's our responsibility as a body to create a place of assembly where it's safe, where people can open up and not feel judgment, where people can open up and not feel shame, where conviction could come but not shame, where, where conviction could come but not guilt and judgment. Does that make sense? Come on, let's just open our mouths and begin to pray for that. That the healing of God would take place through the vulnerability, through the corporate gathering, because we'll see more of God when we see more of one another. So come on, let's open our mouths and begin to pray for that right now. Father, we pray that you remove the fear. God, you remove the fear. And even past wounds, Lord, you would begin to heal this body. You would begin to heal our hearts, Lord. Lord God, you would begin to remove, again, that disillusionment of, I don't want to open up again because I was hurt there. Father, you would begin to create a safe place in this house where we would be guards for one another. We would not only be encouragers of one another, but we would be guards for one another. We'd be protectors of one another. Spiritually, we would cover each other in prayer. Spiritually, we'd cover each other in the spirit we have hearts and lives that are open to one another to help each other grow lord god remove that fear father remove those wounds lord god bring healing to those wounds by the power of your holy spirit in jesus name 
God, it may be a little messy as we grow as an assembly, but we know that through the power of your Holy Spirit, it's possible. And we know that through the power of your Holy Spirit, you're the one that brings that oneness of heart, God. And so, Father, today, we position our hearts to say, God, we want the assembly. God, we want it. We want this place to be primed with revival. We want, Lord God, not just to meet you in our homes, but to meet you while we're gathering together. We don't want to just have an individual spirituality, an individual walk with God. But, Lord, we want to meet you powerfully, corporately, God. So, Father, we just say, come and do more. Come and do more, Father. Come and do more. God, with our brothers and our sisters in this room, we say, come and have your way. Let this soil be ready for the revival that you're bringing, God. Let it be ready, God. Let us expect it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen, amen. God bless you this morning. Before you go, I want you just to, you know, greet someone as they're leaving. Let's start practicing that, that gathering together of opening up hearts and just loving on one another, saying goodbye. You know, sharing love with one another, saying what's up, talking to one another, asking each other how we could pray for them throughout the week. Let's connect and share God's love. Amen.